Hello and welcome to the Startups Roundtable. I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Hi, Tony Hackett is my name. When helping premature babies breathe is your purpose and your pathway is to empower clinicians through innovation, there must be a number of cultural and process experiences to share at the Startups Roundtable. And that is exactly what Amy Yu, the CTO at Ventura Medical, did for us on this episode. Amy is a biomedical engineer with a passion for problem-solving, innovation and engineering. And from her perspective as a co-founder of Ventura Medical, she talks about the founder's journey and the bridging of health, technology and business. Well, a bit about myself. I am a co-founder and CTO of Ventura Medical. And at Ventura Medical, we are developing a real-time airway pressure monitoring device for infants in the neonatal intensive care unit. So a bit about my background. I wasn't necessarily one of those people who graduated high school and knew exactly what career path. To be honest, if you asked me at 17, uh, I don't think I would have known what biomedical engineering was or that it was even an option, let alone having a medtech startup and running a medtech startup. So I finished school in Perth, actually. So I grew up in Perth and I went straight into a Bachelor of Science at the University of Western Australia. And I majored in chemical engineering, thinking that I'd be going out and working in the mines after I finished. But I also decided to do a second major in pathology and laboratory medicine. So this second major was where I became more and more interested in medical sciences. And in my last year of my undergrad, I actually did an assignment that was based around biomedical engineering and how engineering and innovation can improve health outcomes. I did some Googling and found the Master of Biomedical Engineering course at the University of Melbourne. And yeah, I thought this was the best way to combine my love of engineering, but also health and medicine and improving patient outcomes. And I packed my bags to move over here. Amy, building on that context and background, could you take a few minutes now to introduce us to what you're doing with Ventura Medical? Ventura Medical actually spun out of my master's degree. So in my final year at Melbourne Uni, I completed a course called Biodesign Innovation. I'm not sure if you've heard of this, Tony, but it originated at Stanford University and it's a partnership between the School of Engineering and the Melbourne Business School. And the idea is to bring together biomedical engineers and MBA students so that you have that real well-rounded team of engineers who can develop the tech, but also the business expertise to assess the commercial. So the first half of the course is focused on needs finding. And we went out into hospitals to interview clinicians and nurses. We even scrubbed up and watched a few surgeries. Um, And we did this in a number of clinical areas like cardiology and ophthalmology clinical need that really struck us as something that we wanted to solve was a need that we found in the neonatal intensive care unit. Unsurprisingly, the majority of infants admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit are premature. So what this comes with is underdeveloped lungs, which means that a large proportion of these babies need some form of respiratory support to survive. Um, And the gold standard is non-invasive respiratory support. So there is 
invasive respiratory support systems um, or mechanical ventilation where they insert an endotracheal tube into the lungs to to ventilate the patient. But this procedure is risky given the invasiveness and so it's reserved for the most critical lung conditions and critical infants. So with the current non-invasive respiratory support systems and the most widely used systems are CPAP, which you've probably heard of, continuous positive airway pressure. It's also used for sleep apnea. Um, And there's also high flow nasal cannula. And essentially, these systems provide a positive air pressure or flow to the infant's respiratory system in order to keep the lungs inflated. And this is just applied via a mask or some nasal prongs that go into the nostrils. And what we found when we interviewed clinicians and nurses um, was that these systems actually have quite a number of sources of leak. So if the prongs don't fit correctly, air can leak out of the nostrils. Babies obviously open their mouth to cry. They might move around and scratch at prongs. Um, air can leave in, leak into the stomach. And due to these leaks, clinicians will set a pressure or flow on the respiratory support machine, but they don't actually know if this level of support is being delivered to the lungs. So they're essentially forced to use a guess and check method to titrate the support. So they'll set a level, wait for the infant to show clinical signs and whether and if they're struggling, they'll increase the pressure. But the problem is these clinical signs are often delayed and they're confusing. And we were quite struck by this need and we didn't think it was good enough, uh, guess and checking in the neonatal intensive care unit. These are very, very vulnerable and delicate patients that we're dealing with. And so we went about brainstorming solutions and then developing a solution, and that is the real-time airway pressure monitor. Amy, I must say there are so many important and interesting parts of what you've just covered that I'd love to explore. And maybe we'll touch a little bit today on your pathway, which is quite an extraordinary pathway. I'm guessing given you've lived it, it probably doesn't feel so extraordinary now because it has just become part of your life. But growing up in Perth, thinking you're going to work in the mines and then to be where you are now, there's there's something in that that is such a powerful message and the learnings. You also talk about the audience that you serve being infants. I must say, when I saw your website, and I'm, I'm going to say that I'd, I'd read a, an, an attribution. It was, it was actually attributed to Hemingway, but the people say it's not really Hemingway, about the shortest story ever told. I don't know if you've seen this, but the, the claim of the shortest story ever told is a six-word story. And the story is for sale, baby shoes never worn. And so that was, that's been attributed as the shortest. But when I saw your website and it said, helping premature babies breathe, empowering clinicians through innovation, I, I was touched at a personal level. I mean, to be able to capture the essence of this remarkable innovation that you're doing into just a dozen words, I thought there's clarity of thought and purpose in your organization. Because equally, just in the last couple of weeks, I have read about a, a venture firm and they were trying to explain what it is they were doing. And I counted the words in a sentence of their press release There were 69 words in a single sentence. And I equally thought there are a lot of stakeholders and they're not real clarity here. But when I saw the way you express what you're doing, I thought remarkable clarity. The way you've also explained about bringing together business and engineering into the one collaboration, I'm guessing there's no other way this can work. Could you maybe speak to that? If we could start there and talk about the need to balance the business and the engineering and what innovation looks like by way of life cycle? Absolutely. So especially these days, um, with all the technology out there, people 
will see technology and try to find a problem for that technology. And what the biodesign innovation process does is it, it focuses on the need. So you, as like I said, we spent better half of that year exploring clinical needs and really understanding the problem before we started developing the solution, as well as obviously the MBA students in our team who were looking at the commercial viability of of the problem and the solution. So that collaboration is super, super important. You can have the best product out there, but if it can't get to market and if there's no market out there, at the end of the day, hospitals have a limited budget. So they'll only buy a product if it has a, a really clear business case. So whether it's whether that is improving patient outcomes um, or saving the hospital's money and time. How far in advance do your customers need to start to plan their funding cycles? So I'm trying to map this this picture of your R and D bringing new products and services to market and then being able to serve, you're needing to get people to come along the journey with you is my guess. Absolutely. So the medical device uh, commercialization journey is a very long journey uh, compared to other products and other startups. So we are probably still two to three years off from market and we started in 2018. Yeah, to get to market, you need to have relationships with key opinion leaders. So we are lucky enough to have Associate Professor Christiane Feeder on our team. She's a neonatologist at the Royal Women's Hospital, and she's allowed us to develop those relationships with hospitals like the Royal Women's Hospital in order um, to launch successfully when we do so in a couple of years. I know that you've mentioned you're going through funding rounds at the moment. It'd be great to get you to speak to some of your experience there. But before you do that, the need to be able to find employees and business partners and investors, you're very niche. And maybe niche isn't the right word. I'm not sure what word you would use, but very specialized, certainly. That puts a lot of onus on you as an organization to be able to tell your story very clearly, which you do. You do a great job at that, but then to get people to understand a very specific role. Could you maybe speak to each of those layers about employees, business partners, and investors and the need or the challenges with such a specialized offering? It is a very niche area. In terms of employees, we haven't employed anyone yet. We are still our founding team. So that's something that we will obviously have to explore later on. But when we do employ someone, we want someone who aligns with our values and ultimately wants to achieve the same goals as we set out, like you said before, and that is helping premature babies breathe. So business partners are very important and there are a lot of different considerations when it comes to commercializing a medical device. So you have the regulatory approval, the reimbursement, clinical trial, and for everything to be coherent and for the product to get to market, your business partners, so that whether that be your IP lawyers, whether that be your product developers, they need to also have a really good understanding of each of these elements in the medical device commercialization process. And so when we go out and we um, align ourselves with these business partners, we make sure that they have these attributes. So for example, our product developers, they're ISO 13485 accredited, um, which means that um, everything is will be good to go when it comes to regulatory approval. Um, and investors, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Medical device, medical devices, it's seen as quite high risk. 
um, to investors. A lot of investors, they'll hear our pitch and they're not necessarily too interested, which is why when we go out to fundraise, we do it quite strategically. So we've identified the investors who are interested and have a good understanding of medical device commercialization, whether that be angel investors, individual angels, whether that be those VC firms. We target our, we want to target the investors who have a good understanding of what we do and have the networks to provide value to us as well. Could I maybe extend your explanation then on investors to share some of your learnings around coaches and mentors and what advice you'd give to somebody else who might be listening to this podcast as they try to determine what to look for and how to look for that type of advice? Ventura Medical has been through a number of pre-accelerators and accelerators, including the Melbourne Accelerator Program, Velocity Program, which is their program for earlier stage startups, as well as the MedTech Actuator Accelerator, which is MedTech specific, Australia's flagship accelerator for MedTech startups, if you like. So through these programs, we've been, been able to obviously learn a lot through the formal training components, the seminars and the workshops. But I really cannot emphasize enough how much we have gained from the networks that we've been able to, to tap into through these programs. Um, like I mentioned earlier, there are so many different things that you need to think about when, when bringing a product like ours to the market. Um, and so when we started, it was almost a case of not knowing what you don't know. And our mentors have really been helpful in guiding us in the right direction. We've also had mentors who are fellow founders and they may not necessarily be in the medical device space, but they've been successful with startups. So learning from their mistakes, but also their successes has been really invaluable. Given that you're only a few years into this journey, when you look at the start to now, are there any significant things that you would look at that you would have maybe tried to do faster and earlier and maybe some things that you could have afforded to delay? Yeah. So when we first started, we actually had a team of five co-founders and the transition from a university project to a company was actually quite challenging. So at the start, everyone wanted to have input on all decisions. It was quite difficult. I mean, you can think about how hard it is to sometimes get a group of your friends together, um, let alone when they have full-time jobs and other commitments. So a few of our early decisions were quite slow and streamlining the decision-making process um, was definitely helped us a lot. So once those co-founders left, we had three. So myself, our CEO, Edward, and also our, our strategic marketing officer, Alan. And we, what we did was we set really clear roles for the three of us and we found this really helped in our decision making and also to make the best use of our time. So I guess that's one thing that I probably wish we did earlier. The idea of decision process refinement and improvement, that interests me a lot. Do you give an example of how you go about making decisions as a team now? Yeah. So like I said, it's a bit more streamlined now. Um, we don't need to talk to five people before we make a decision. If it's a large decision, Edward and I, we work full time in the business now every day. So it can be made quite efficiently. You know, we're at the office or these days on the phone to each other every day now that we can't be in the office. But then also if it's a small decision, we trust each other to be able to make those small decisions. So for example, I'm CTO. If it's a small decision related to the tech or the product, I know that he trusts me to make that decision. And likewise for Edward in the other areas of the business that he leads. When I look at R&D with, with a software firm and the way that they have 
time on their side and uh, a certain tolerance for error because they're just promising functionality on a screen somewhere. Your promise and the emotion that goes with your promise is in a different stratosphere and you'll be wanting to do things rapidly. You need to bring discipline and diligence to it. Engineering and technology are going to be saying we can do things faster and better and there's, there'll be this, I'll call it a contention, certainly a, a creative tension. How do you manage that creative tension with those those mixes yeah for sure so obviously there are so many standards that need that we need to adhere to when developing our product and so when we talk to our product developers it's very clear that any incorrect design decision could have an impact on someone else's life so we have very very strict um, and clear requirements for our product development um, and design decisions when you've started this funding round and with the the wonderful innovators I've had the good fortune to speak to so far on the podcast, no one has actually been in the process that you're in right now. I'm, I'm guessing, Amy, this is the first time you're personally going through a funding round? That's right. Uh, we raised a pre-seed round, you might call it, when we entered an accelerator program. But this is the first funding round that I have been through and it's definitely an interesting time to be going through a funding round, given that we can't meet people face-to-face. Right. And how many people, are, by percentage, are local that you would have met with probably face-to-face versus overseas, who you may well have met face-to-face also, but what's the divide between in Australia and out of Australia? The majority are in Australia. We've got a couple overseas. But in yeah, I must say that if it hadn't been for COVID, I'm not sure that we would have had these conversations with um, these investors overseas. So possibly a blessing in disguise, but it's an interesting one now that everything has moved to Zoom. It does give you um, that capability to talk to everyone, talk to people all around the world. That's very interesting. And then how do you think it has impacted your ability to tell the story? Having heard you speak today, I'm sure you deliver it great, but there's something that comes to do with you can read the room when we're physically in the room, how have you planned for or what have you learned from that experience? Definitely. When when you're talking to someone in person, it is quite different to speaking online. So we've had to craft our story um, to make sure it's very clear. It's not necessarily a need that most people are aware of. What we've done is we've held webinars with our entire team on board. So that includes our clinical advisor, Christiane Theta, and she's been able to present the problem from her own experience to the audience. So that's been really helpful having our entire team there on the call. That is a great advantage. I know from my own experience working online and having worked with a startup about a decade ago, the need to have that that real pulse of the business. And once you've got people who work with you in collaboration to have that pulse of, of their business with you, it is something that has been an, an unintended consequence of us being so much online now that we can achieve that level of, of breadth and, and more effectively. What, I, what I've also experienced is a real need to be more succinct in delivering the message. And I'm wondering if the people who are listening to you pitch have actually, if you have felt that maybe they've been a little bit sharper or a bit more direct because it's online, because they're not in the room and because they're not personally sitting with you, or you think it's been much the same experience? Good question. I'm not actually sure because we haven't done too many investor pitches in person. I would imagine that investors are quite sharp anyway. So 
I mean, they have been sharp online, but I would imagine that they'd be sharp in person as well. Um, I guess you are limited to that one hour Zoom call, so that perhaps that um, means that they have to fire questions at you quicker and you have to think more quickly in your feet. But yeah, that's our experience. Did you feel as though you got a lot of good grounding out of the accelerator program to set you up for where you are now from that needing to drive the message very tight delivery of message? Yeah, definitely. So the accelerator program helped us in a number of areas. We did workshops in marketing um, and strategy and commercialization and um, all those different areas. And we did a workshop on crafting your story and your vision and mission. So that's definitely been helpful in um, delivering our message succinctly. Um, And like you said, we're quite proud of our um, statement, helping premature babies breathe because it sticks to people. Absolutely. And I must say that when I looked at the values that you publish on your website as well, uh, under simplicity about you value clarity over complexity. And I must say, I think that you've done that remarkably well for us today, bringing what is a very complex field that you're working into, and you've delivered that with great clarity. I really appreciate that you would share so many elements of what you're doing right now on the podcast and for anybody who's listening and looking for some tips on how to move from their idea to actually start their own business. I think you've landed some wonderful learnings and very generous. So Amy, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Tony. I'm so pleased to have met Amy and been introduced to the Ventura Medical Story. Their care, compassion and drive are crucial and it was terrific to gain an insight into this complex innovation they are tackling. But that's it for today. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.